can do. We have principles from scripture to guide us in making decisions. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he guides us to help us to know the will of God. So when we are under the control of the Holy Spirit, we are then led by him in the choices that we make. It becomes a greater challenge, though, when people that we know and people that we love and people who love us, from their human perspective, tell us to do things that are the easier path, or the path that is less difficult or less painful. Uh, that was Paul's experience. I recall as a newly married uh, couple, Steve and I felt confident it was the Lord's will for us to come here to Florida, to his home church, to get some practical experience about the pastorate, and it was hard for our family. For us to leave, we had no job, no place to live, but we were just going to go do this. Of course, we didn't see in the future that we're st still here 40 years later. But it is hard for people who love us, and we, they want what's best for us, and that's what was going on with Paul and his friends. Paul had people who loved him, and they wanted him to be safe. And nobody wants somebody they love to go in a dangerous situation. Yet the Bible is filled with examples of men and women who served the Lord. They stayed true to his calling despite the danger that would come upon them. They stayed true to their convictions to go. In our study today, we see the Apostle Paul staying true to strong convictions that he held to. I know some commentators say, Paul blew it, he sinned, he shouldn't have gone, everyone was telling him, he just was wrong. But I would beg to differ greatly with that. He had been led to collect money throughout the Roman Empire as he founded churches to bring money from Greek uh, Gentiles to the poor people in Jerusalem. That was his heart. And it wasn't just to meet the physical need of the people in Jerusalem, it was much bigger than that. He was trying to bring unity amongst the Greek, the Gentile community, and the Jewish becoming one body. So it's very important to him to carry through with that plan. He talks about it in Ephesians 2. It was his conviction to deliver the gift himself, not give it to somebody else to do. And if we jump ahead to chapter 23, verse 11, we see, but on the night following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Doesn't really sound like a rebuke from the Lord. This was his purpose. And so in going to Jerusalem, Paul was to have an opportunity to speak before the entire Jewish council, before the mob of people, angry as they were. And also it set up the situation that ultimately got him to Rome. And in Rome, he's, in a, he's a prisoner, so he's sharing the gospel in the Caesar's household, many come to believe. Roman soldiers come to believe. You know, God's ways are not our ways. <laughs> his thoughts aren't our thoughts and his plans are different. The issue is being obedient. As I said before, the path of least, path of least resistance is not always the will of God. So in light of that truth, beware of Bible teachers who get up and claim that if you love the Lord, then he will give you a life where you have wealth and you have health and everything is comfy, cozy. That is not the biblical presentation in scripture. No, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that's the case with Paul. So Paul was uh, a bond slave to Jesus and he would follow him anywhere he would lead. I remind you back in the chapter 16, verse 6, while he was on his second missionary journey, uh, Paul was 
we read, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and after that they came to Messiah, uh, and then they went on to Bethania, and the Spirit of Jesus did not, did not permit them to go there. So it was very clear. He followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. That was not a new thing to him. This is the way he lived his life. In reality, what we see of Paul in chapter 21 is a determination and fearlessness to do what God had led him to do, regardless of what was going to be the outcome and personal consequences in his life. We also read in chapter 23, verse 1, as Paul looked at the council, we'll see this next week, he said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. He didn't say, oh, I shouldn't have ever come here in the first place and be in this pickle. No, he believed he was doing what the Lord wanted him to do. So, Paul was a humble enough man to admit if he made a mistake. But the conscience, his conscience was clear before the Lord. So, we see Paul returns to Jerusalem with his purpose and courage. But he is misunderstood. Verse 1 says, when we had parted from the Ephesian elders at Miletus, which is what we saw last week, uh, we had set sail, ran a straight course to Kos, and then the next day to Rhodes, and from there to uh, Patera on to Phoenicia. So this word, when we parted, you remember it was such a tearful. It really means tearing apart, and that's what it was, that tearful goodbye to the Ephesians' elders who he had invest invested three years of his life with. Said that goodbye to his beloved friends, and he got in the ship, and they kept stopping at every port for the night. Trying to get Jerusalem, as you recall, before Pentecost, he was in a great hurry, so he decided to go across the Mediterranean Sea instead of the route of just hugging the coast. And eventually that ship stopped in Tyre for a seven-day period of unloading, reloading, whatever. Now they knew there were believers in Tyre because when Stephen was martyred, and if you recall, a great persecution broke out and believers had come to this place. So the team had to go looking for those who were believers in Jesus, and they spent seven days together and shared together. And they came to love Paul in that short of a time, and they were concerned for his safety. We read, they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. This can be translated because of impressions made by the Spirit. These people were warning Paul. Paul was well aware of the Spirit's leading in his life. Paul stayed away when he was told to do so, and he went where he was told to go. In Acts 19.21, we read, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in, his, in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That was the plan. He had told the Ephesian elders, And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Well, he's getting it made known to him what's exactly going to happen when he does get there. But he's compelled to finish his course. The believers wanted Paul, as they were led by the Spirit, to be warned about the imminent danger when he would go to Jerusalem. Paul took this warning to heart, but he never saw it as a prohibition from the Lord. He had a desire to fulfill the very thing he had set out to do. Persecution or not, well-meaning believers and their comments or not, nothing was going to deter him. So they sailed again, landing in Ptolemais, and then went on to Caesarea the next day. And there they stayed with Philip. Remember Philip? We met him very early on in Acts as one of the seven faithful men that the apostles at the very start of the church called upon to help in their ministry and in serving the early church. He preached the gospel in Samaria in chapter 8, and he was the one who shared the truth with the Ethiopian eunuch. 
So here he is again, years and years later. We read he had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. We realize the New Testament's not complete. These women were given uh, to speak for the Lord. And in this case, he didn't prophesy regarding Paul. Rather, a man named Agabus came down from Judea. And he took Paul's belt and he bound his hands and his feet and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, that's pretty clear. So those present who heard this, of course, their immediate reaction is, don't go, don't go, don't go. It's dangerous, don't go. They're trying to persuade him. And how does Paul respond in verse 13? Why, I, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. He says, for I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I have to do what he's led me to do must have been very hard for Paul to have his traveling companions as well join in and saying, don't go, don't go. Paul didn't uh, get a lot of encouragement at this point from his fellow believers. No one was saying, stay true to the course God said for you. No one was saying, hey, he'll be with you no matter what. Just go. We're with you. It's finally, it was just like, okay, well, the will of the Lord be done then. That brings Paul into Jerusalem. Despite all of these circumstances, he finally gets there, and it must have been such a time of great joy for Paul and the believers that he hadn't seen for so many years. There would have been lots of catching up to do, sharing of all the work that God had done. I mean, do you know how mind-blowing it was for all these Jewish people to hear that Gentiles were believing in their Messiah? It was, it was, it was shocking to them. And so they were hearing all of these things as Paul had completed his third missionary journey. There were lots of uh, conflicting reports about Paul that had to get straightened out. But he gave the money. There's really no comment about that. And, and then he shared with great joy all that God had done in planting churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And I love how they said, and they glorified God. They didn't glorify Paul. There's a whole lot of people today who glorify the man who's only bringing the message. And I love that these believers glorified God for what he was doing. So this joyous time together ended quickly as Paul is being informed about this some big trouble brewing. So there were lies about Paul that were circulating among Jewish believers. They were being told that Paul says, abandon everything to do with your Jewishness. Don't circumcise your sons. And Jewish believers in Jesus still had a great love for the law and for all that they had known in Judaism. Nowhere were they told they had to stop their practices, and nowhere was that condemned. As a matter of fact, you recall Paul addresses this in Romans um, with the weaker brethren who doesn't have a clear conscience to eat foods that have been offered to idols, and so on. What had been forbidden was imposing these on Gentile believers in Jesus. After all, this was a time of transition for Jewish believers in Jesus. It was a dangerous group that had arisen who said, yes, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they were actually enemies of the gospel of grace. They said, yes, we believe, and if you're a Gentile, that's fine. You just have to convert to Judaism, and then you can believe in Jesus too. So these were bringing great danger and harm. You know, the book of Galatians, Paul addresses this error. Uh, they insisted people had to keep the Mosaic Law to be saved. There was adding works to the gospel, the gospel of grace. But it appears their lies about Paul were troubling a lot of true Jewish believers 
in and around Jerusalem and, and out and beyond their borders there. So these false Judaizers tried to destroy Paul in the eyes of Jewish believers, giving these really distorted, awful lies to discredit him. So Paul had never taught Jews to abandon their heritage. As a matter of fact, recall, he's the one who had Timothy uh, circumcised, so there'd be no conflicts when they went to synagogues together. Everyone was going to learn that Paul was in town. So they had to make some decisions. And what was suggested is that, look, we got four men in our church who decided to take a Nazarite vow. Why don't you go with them to the temple and, and help take care of their costs and do the ceremonial cleansing as you uh, go to the temple tomorrow? That way, when they see you, they'll realize you're not anti-temple, anti-everything uh, that we stand for. So Paul agrees to do this. Uh, there was no compromise in biblical truth in doing this. This was his Christian liberty to choose to do this. This wasn't doing this so I can earn points with God. I remind you that he had himself taken a Nazarite vow in his second missionary journey, and Paul would do whatever he could for there to be peace as long as scripture was not violated. You know, Paul didn't say to these people, you know, Jesus appeared to me. I spent time in the third heaven but if you want my opinion, now he submitted himself very humbly to what these men suggested. He already knew that at some point there's going to be trouble and an arrest. But there was a confidence that God was in control. God would be with him no matter what would happen. And he, had, he believed that. He had total confidence in that. He is a great example to us. Jesus said, you know what? In the world, you will have tribulation. But, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So truly, we should not be surprised when tribulation comes into our lives. Why is it that we are? Why am I having this, this horrible trial, this suffering, this... Really? Jesus said, this is the way it's going to be here. It's not to be a surprise. Like Paul, we must trust the Lord even when evil or injustice comes into our life. God is on the throne. He is working all things together for good, Romans 8.28, and it's all to conform us to the image of his son. Paul understood that. So here's the temple scene. As you recall, it was a feast of Pentecost, so the Jews from all over the Roman Empire there to observe this in Jerusalem. Uh, those from Asia Minor, probably from <coughs> Ephesus, remember Paul spent three years there, they see uh, Trophimus in town. Oh boy, there's that Greek man. And then they see Paul, and they recognize him, and so they grab him, and they start yelling to everyone around them to help this evil man is in their temple. And they said, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Amazing how some people can lie so well and so easily. So they accuse Paul, who is Jewish himself, of being anti-Semitic. That really doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, this is Paul, who wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 9, if I could go to hell, if that would mean my Jewish brethren would go to heaven, I would go to hell forever for them. Not possible, but that was his heart and love for his kinsmen. He never taught to stop Jewish Customs, rather, that Gentiles must not be forced to observe them, and they have nothing to do with your salvation. The next lie was to further ignite the crowd that Paul opposed the law of God. Really? Paul's in the temple. 
He's celebrating the, Pas uh, pa the Pentecost after Passover, which is a celebration of the giving of the law. Then they lie again saying he blasphemed by defiling the temple. And so these same lies, as you recall, were told about Jesus as well as Stephen. And then they tapped it all off uh, their lies by their bold-faced lie that he brought a Gentile into the temple where they're not allowed to go. Which really is a ridiculous thing because there was a big placard, it's been dug up archaeologically, very clear sign. Any Gentile who goes beyond the limit of where you're allowed, the Romans gave the Jewish people the authority to kill them. So Trophimus, if he had actually tried to do that, would have already been put to death. But they were just stirring up the crowd and making their false accusations. So we saw last week what an angry crowd and mob looks like with Demetrius in our study last time. And here now we have a very angry crowd who believes, and what they're being told is this man has done this great evil in our very presence and to all that we believe. So they stir up the crowd, but God had other plans. Um, and at this point, they start beating on Paul. How many minutes went by where they're punching, kicking, whatever. And who does God send to rescue him but a high Roman soldier in authority? Sometimes God sends the most unlikely people into our lives to bring us relief from a situation. And this was the case with the Apostle Paul. So this Roman army, have to imagine with the temple... Uh, area. There are two large towers, and there's called the Antonia Fortress, and this is where the Romans could stand at the very top and look out over at the Jews all in their temple area. So this is how they kept uh, track. They didn't have satellites. This is their version of we're watching what you're doing in there to make sure everything is calm. So obviously the report, I mean, it was seen right away. There's a mob, there's a beating, there's all kinds of yelling, screaming, and they rush there and grab Paul. Of course, he's assumed guilty of doing something horrendous. And so right away, this man named Claudius Lysias, he, he grabs him, arrests him, puts him in chains, and they break up the riot. And Paul is assumed guilty, as I said, of something that he must have done bad. And he's being brought to the barricade. And, and the crowd is following him. I mean, they just want to get their hands on Paul. And he tries to stop this violence of the crowd. And then in verse 37, Paul speaks to the commander. So imagine a very broad, wide staircase. And the soldiers end up really carrying him up there because the crowd is trying to get Paul. And Paul gets up there, beaten, bloodied, whatever. And uh, he says to the Roman soldier in charge, may I say something? And uh, he turns to him, do you know Greek? I mean, he's speaking in very clear, educated sounding Greek. This soldier had, we read, assumed that Paul must have been this Egyptian terrorist who had led a revolt and had committed thousands of assassinations of Romans. He just assumed that must be who this is. But as Paul speaks to him in Greek, he realizes this isn't that terrorist. So Paul clarifies, no, I'm a Jew of Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of a no insignificant city, Paul had every right to be in the temple, he himself being Jewish. And now Paul asks if he could speak to this big mob of people who are there. Imagine Paul bleeding, swollen, chains, and he still has a heart for these people who just did this to him. He wants an opportunity 
to really share the truth with them. I'm amazed at how Paul saw every situation he found himself in through the lens of, oh, maybe now I can share about Jesus in this situation. He really was alert. And even it would have been understandable for him to just want to go in the barracks and, and deal with his wounds or whatever. He wanted to speak to these enemies. Of course, God was orchestrating all these events for the soldier to say, oh, sure, go ahead, talk to the crowd. And the fact that the crowd quieted down is, again, an act of God working that they'd even be silent to hear what he had to say. So Paul brings his defense before this angry group of people. We learn so much from what he did here, really, and how he spoke and communicated. It's very encouraging to follow his example. So try to imagine, as I said, the broad staircase and the towers on either side, and Paul's standing on the top of them now, and everybody's gathered around. He's surrounded by the soldiers, everyone's watching, and Paul motioned to the people with his hand a signal that he was about to speak, a signal that everyone would have recognized. And the crowd fell silent, another amazing work of the Lord, to quiet this mob. With much wisdom, Paul decided to speak to this Jewish mob in their Hebrew dialect, in Aramaic. So using this language got their attention immediately. We can learn from Paul as we observe how he shared the good news of the gospel to people who really actually are hostile to what he had to say. Paul's personal testimony is how he begins, and that's really how we should begin when we have an opportunity. This is what my life was like before I came to know Jesus, and that's what Paul began. He's clearing up some lies about him, too. He's not anti-Jewish. This was a man born a Hellenistic Jew, that means Greek-speaking Jew, uh, in, from Tarsus. His parents had obviously moved to Jerusalem. They educated him under Gamaliel, one of the most famous, revered rabbis. Paul's background was active in his faith. He strictly kept to the law. Paul had once been a Pharisee. He, he had studied the law, and he did not oppose it as the lies had said. And he wasn't just an academic scholar of the law. He was zealous for God. He says, just as you are today. He recognized, he got it. They're upset because they think something terrible has been done against God's law. And so he found a common ground. Yes, I understand, because that's how I have always been too, zealous for the things of God. So he found a, a commonality that he could talk to him, and he again got their attention. What a great way to connect. He understood that they were upset because of zeal for what they thought was a right thing. And now they're really listening. He has found a clear way to relate to their thinking. The zeal of Paul had led him to do far more than grab a mob and try to start beating on him. He had actually, actually persecuted the way and went and got people and took them out of their homes, away from their families, and put them in prison in the name of their Jewish leadership. Believers in Jesus were frightened of this guy. When they heard Saul was coming, it was very scary. Paul could even call on the council that was still lived uh, there in Jerusalem and say, you're the people who gave me orders that I could go off to Damascus far away and bring Jews back who follow Jesus and put them in prison. He had letters to do so. Think of how many children he orphaned by taking both of their parents away to put in prison. That's how zealous he was. 
Well, but something happened to change the course of his life. We read the conversion of Paul in verses 6 through 16, and that's really the same for each one of us. I mean, whether you realize it or not, there has to come a point in your life where you see the fact that you're a sinner and you're alienated from God. Nobody is a Christian because their parents claim to know Jesus. Nobody's a Christian because they go to church. Nobody's a Christian because they got baptized or take communion. Those things don't make you a Christian. It's only when you come to the point where you realize how wretched and sinful you are and that has alienated you from a holy God. And it's only the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross that makes it possible to come into a relationship with him. And that's what happened with Paul. So his life before, a very religious man, devoutly religious man. A lot of people are very religious, but they don't know Jesus. And that was the case with Paul. So now we come to the point of his conversion. And he tells this dramatic account of coming to believe in Jesus. He is, tells his testimony three times in the book of Acts. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest more believers, put them and drag them back and put them in prison. And it's about noon, so it's the brightest time of day and suddenly a light brighter than the sun, the Shekinah glory of Jesus blinds him. He falls to the ground because he can't even see anything. And he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Reminded me of the verses where Jesus talks about when you went and visited me in prison and you gave food or drink to me when I was in need. You clothed me and people, well, when did we ever do that for you? And he says, it's, when you do this to someone else, you are doing it for me. So when people are persecuted for their faith, they are persecuting Jesus. And so that's why Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And what was his response? I mean, everybody around heard the voice and saw the light. They didn't seem to grasp what was being said. But Paul, Saul, at that point's response is, what shall I do? He, wants, he, he, was, uh, he was told to get up, go to Damascus, and there it will be told to you what I've appointed you to do. Well, he's blind at this point, so the men with him get up and help him get up, and they lead him into the city of Damascus. And then poor Ananias, he's told, I want you to go, you know, talk to this guy. So, wait a minute, isn't he the guy? Yes, he is the guy, but I'm doing a work and I've changed his heart. So this man was well respected of by the Jewish people and he came and spoke to, to Saul, who became Paul. He received his eyesight back. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have heard, seen and heard. What an amazing turnaround. And that's what Jesus does. He turns your life around. You're going your direction. I'm in charge. I'm doing what I think is right. I'm going to live my life. And it's an instant turnaround when you come to see Amen. your desperate need Amen. for forgiveness and for salvation. Mm -hmm. Paul, complete turnaround. And God had sovereignly chosen Saul for salvation. He told him to arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is not a verse, though some may take it as a proof text that you have to be baptized. That is not what this verse is. You don't take 99% of scripture which says salvation is an act of obedience after you're saved and take a verse like this and say, no, all of that's wrong. You have to be baptized to be saved. No, salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone. And once we have come to know him, we follow him in obedience. Baptism is just a picture 
going in the water, coming out of the change in your heart, buried with Christ in his death and resurrection, and raised to walk in a new way of life. We saw in Cornelius and his family, they believed the gospel and they were baptized. This verse can be translated literally, arise, get yourself baptized, and your sins washed away, having called on his name. So Paul had already believed on Jesus at that moment when he was on the ground, blinded by the light. And as I said, baptism just pictures that change of heart. So God calls Paul to, um, God's call to Paul after his salvation. Now he told his life before, now I know the truth. And then what happened? Well, he had been told by God earlier to get out of Jerusalem. There was a plot to kill him. And Paul at that point years ago thought, oh no, no, they'll, they'll listen to me. Because just like me, I, I was zealous to murder. I'm the one who stood there when they murdered Stephen. I held everybody's coat and gave hearty approval. So they'll understand that they're wrong, that <laughs> I was wrong, but now I get it. And the Lord said, no, you need to leave because they're going to kill you. So at that point, he says, the Lord told him, go for I will send you away to the Gentiles. Ooh, the G word. We call it the G bomb. You know, this just, whoa, blowhorn, did he say what? And all the mob erupts. <laughs> there is no toleration by anyone who would possibly suggest Gentiles could be right with God without first becoming Jewish. And that would mean, if that were true, that then Gentiles were equal footing before God, even though they never had the covenant, the law, nothing. How could that be? There was such a racial prejudice it caused uh, them to want to kill Paul again when he said this. So, end of opportunity to speak came to an end. The reaction is hysteria again. I, I can imagine the Roman soldier go, whoa, whoa, we're going downhill fast once more. And the commander <laughs> ordered him back to the barracks saying he should be examined by scourging. This was the wooden handle with the long leather strips with sharp bones, glass, whatever to whip and flay your back. I mean, we know Jesus had this experience uh, as well. Many people died just from that because they bled to death. However, Roman citizens were exempt from ever having this done if you were a citizen and you were not condemned. So as Paul is stretched out to make it even more painful that you'd be tied tight, spread apart, he calmly asks, you know, um, is this the right thing to do to a Roman citizen not condemned? Well, that put the fear of Rome in the men who are supposed to be interrogating him, who run to the commanding officer, who runs to talk to him like, whoa, you're a Roman citizen? And the commander said, well, I'm a Roman citizen too, but I had to you know, buy it, bribe it, however he got it. And Paul said, well, I was born one. So this is a big oops. I mean, he could have lost his position and his life as a Roman um, soldier for what he had done. So the chains placed on Paul, uh, the chains placed on Paul without hearing any legal defense was absolutely illegal and completely uh, bewildered. Um, he decides, you know what, you just got to go speak to these Jewish religious leaders. And that's where it ends. So next week we pick that up. But by way of application, I just wanted to say to you and to me, one can't help but be impressed with Paul's boldness. He believed God was in control. He knew he could face whatever would come, arrest, persecution, and he accepted that as God's will. 
Secondly, he viewed his rotten circumstances as, as another opportunity to share Jesus with a crowd. I and mean, this is very convicting to me when you're stuck in a long line in a grocery store. Is there any thought to maybe I can engage someone with the gospel while I'm standing here? I mean, Paul's perspective on life was every situation find a way to share truth with the lost and dying world. And when he spoke to the crowd, he addressed them as brethren and fathers. What a kind way to speak to people who are just beating him. Fourth, Paul loved lost people. He knew the condition of every person born into this world, separated from God. And he loved his Jewish kinsmen. It was a love that brought him to Jerusalem. It was a love that had him um, at the temple that day. His love for the Lord caused him to try to share the truth with even a hostile, uh, those hostile to him. He found common ground to be able to share the gospel with people. He was willing to do the will of God no matter what personal cost it would be. And even when not supported by friends and people who loved him, he was faithful to do what he believed the Lord wanted him to do. May that be the desire of each one of us here. And if you put your trust in Jesus, you can remember how you were you know there was a point of change where you trusted him as your savior and lord and your life is changing that's what the christian life is continual change growth like a baby growing we're we're changing we're being conformed to the image of his son so share that truth you can share that you don't have to be a bible genius you can share the truth of the gospel with anyone you meet or maybe you're here and you realize, you know what, there has never been that time when you realized that you needed to turn from your sins and you're being in control of your life and your own self-will and pride and turn to Jesus. Maybe you've been religious, just like Paul, and zealous, but if it's not for the truth, then that's all it is, a religion. Jesus wants a relationship with you, the person, you and him. I pray you won't let time delay if you don't know him, that you'll call upon him. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for truth. Lord, I pray that we would learn from Paul's example and be brave and courageous because we have a message of hope to people who are lost and going to hell and have no hope or have a false hope. Father, I pray that you will give us that kind of courage that Paul had to look in every situation of our day for an opportunity to share the truth of how amazing your love is. In Jesus' name. Amen.